You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. Today, I have a really special guest in Denny Sapp, who was a solo pilot for the Blue Angels back in 1975 and 1976, when the Blues were pretty new to the A4 Skyhawk. Denny's got a lot to share with us in this episode, including his journey to the Navy, his time flying combat missions in Vietnam, which includes over 365 plus missions, his time serving as a test pilot at China Lake, before eventually becoming a Blue Angel pilot, where he invented several new maneuvers that he's going to tell us all about, as well as some other very behind-the-scenes stories. So if you like the Blue Angels and love Blue Angel history, then stick around and please join me in welcoming Denny Sapp to the podcast. Denny Sapp, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I know it's a Super Bowl Sunday, so I appreciate the time you're taking to spend a couple minutes and and sharing a little bit about yourself with us. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate your uh, asking me to do this because I think uh, being recorded for posterity is a a pretty good move. (laughs) Well, hey, I appreciate it. So you you live in the uh, Pacific Northwest, is that right? Is that where you grew up as well? No, uh, we're living in... We've lived up here in Seattle right now for about 35 years, but my wife and I were both born and raised in southwest Iowa, uh, small towns. Hers was much smaller than mine, and about 50 miles from Omaha, and grew up as a farm kid and lived fairly close to off at Air Force Base. So, um, But yeah, it was, we're Iowa kids. Did growing up near off at Air Force Base, is that what got you into aviation, or did something else inspire your, your journey into aviation? Well, you know, it's interesting about the initial start, you know, and thinking about that, because being close to Offutt back in the 50s, um, when the Cold War was going on hot and heavy in our little town of 5,000 people, there was a uh, they'd put a tower up on top of the hill that was a manned tower. Uh, I, I don't know if it was 24 hours a day or what, but I was probably eight or nine years old, I suppose. And my mom uh, was a volunteer to go up on this tower and it was to be looking for enemy aircraft that were coming in toward <laughs> toward uh, Offutt Air Force Base. So every time a, an airplane went by, she had to record it in a log of w- what she was seeing. And uh, with Offutt being so close, you know, we watched a lot of bombers and stuff, uh, U.S. bombers obviously coming into, uh, into Offutt and then recorded any uh, airline traffic that was going into Omaha and e- even little airplanes and stuff. And so I think our blocks of time were like four hours a, uh, a day and we would do that like once a week and I went up with there all the time. So I guess that's the first really looking at airplanes, you know, that I had seen, but as time kind of went on, uh, and I, I think I was a sophomore in high school in the early sixties, there was a TV program on and, uh, it was the blue angels and I would watch that, you know, I mean, along with all the victory at sea movies and stuff like, or uh, videos, the shows that were on too, victory at sea, but, that Blue Angel series that was on, uh, I couldn't wait to get home from school every day. That's that's the one series that I wanted to see. So it's kind of interesting. As time went on, I made the team, and I got a chance to know a fellow named Duke Vincent, who was actually Duke Ventimiglia. Um, he was uh, on the team back in 60 and 61 when they were actually filming that. And, of course, you know, we've seen some of the episodes in the years since, and they're pretty hokey. I mean, you know, the Blue Angels fly into town, and, and they thwart a bank robbery or something like that. It's kind of a funny thing. And Duke wasn't very, you know, uh, proud of that. But the flying stuff was just like 
anything. You know, the flying stuff was really cool. So that's kind of my first introduction to flying. But as a farm kid, I didn't think there was any chance that I was ever going to going to be a, a pilot because I figured, well, I thought I was going to be a mechanic out of high school. A lot of my buddies were going to the Air Force and the Marine Corps enlisting. Of course, graduating high school in 63. So the draft was there. And, you know, that was something we all had to consider. Vietnam hadn't really started yet. But as time went on, you know, and I, I didn't want to really go to college. Dad says, yeah, you got to go to college. He only had a he only had a 10th grade education, but he was a machinist for Union Carbide. And he was the one that really, he and my mom both encouraged me to go to college. So I went, he thought I should be an engineer and I ended up kind of becoming a teacher. But uh, anyway, that's, that was where my uh, first interest, I would imagine, you know, I was just like any kid that built a lot of airplane models and, you know, and got, it was a dream that you could have, but no way it was ever going to really happen in my mind. So once you were in college, I assume you got in touch with a recruiter and that's how you found your way in the Navy or did you have a different journey to the Navy? Well, yeah, kind of a uh, story I won't really get into in any depth, but when I was 20 and I was a sophomore in college and I thought I wanted to be a Marine. I always thought even out of high school, I wanted to be a Marine, but three of my fraternity brothers were uh, Marine PLCs, that's platoon leader class, and they would go in the summertime uh, you know, to Marine to Quantico and, and uh, get their training, and then they were going to be commissioned second lieutenants. Well, I kind of uh, I was I applied for the aviation program as one of those guys had been in av- aviation, so I applied to the aviation program and uh, and was accepted. You know, physically and test wise and everything else. So, I was, you know, I, but they didn't end up taking me, and, and I won't go into that story about why they didn't take me. But so I waited about a year and a half until I was about to graduate. And, my dad knew people at the draft board and said, you know, you're going to get drafted. So, you know, you better think about something to do uh, out of college. So I went to the Air Force and went to the Navy and took their tests and their physicals and everything and was pretty much thinking I was going to go Air Force until I watched a movie, a World War II movie on carrier aviation at the fraternity house one afternoon, got all pumped up, fired up. And I thought, oh, that's the way to go. I got to land on a carrier. And uh, so I went down that week and to Olathe, Kansas, and signed on the dotted line. And Navy recruit or the Air Force recruiter called me up a few days later because he thought I was a shoe in to come to the Air Force. And I told him I'd already joined the Navy. But it's uh, it, it it's I'm just so grateful that I I did that and had that experience. So yeah, that was kind of my my in inside uh, story of getting to the <laughs> to the Navy. And then uh, how did you become, I, I assume you have to have a college degree to become an officer, is that correct? Yeah, yes, that's right. And so, like I said, I was graduating with a degree in education. My wife and I at that point, my future wife and I were dating, and uh, we just thought we were going to be teachers up in Iowa someplace and, until, like I say, I was trying to do something to avoid, you know, getting drafted and uh, going to the Army. So that's why had to have the degree, and then I didn't even know if I was going to like flying or not. So uh, a few months before I actually signed on with the Air, with the Navy, I went out and took some little airplane flying lessons just to see whether or not I could even – I didn't even know whether I'd like to go in the air. That was the first time I went into the air. And I uh, was flying a, uh, an, Ar- an Aronka Champ off a grass strip. Of course, no radios, no instruments, no nothing, just pretty much seat of the pants flying and found out that I loved it and kind of went to that whole thing about most aviators. I think, uh, you know, they realize, you know, if they have that passion and that absolute love for flying, they're going to know it pretty much right off the bat. 
So you get, I assume you went to officer candidate school in Pensacola? Yes, I did. Uh, okay, I went aviation AOCS, and uh, I was in class 0768, which was uh, in March of 68. And it's kind of interesting, uh, as I went down to Pensacola, I had a brand new GTO, you know, just right out of college. So I, a lot of guys, when they showed up at OCS, had Corvettes or GTOs or whatever. Anyway, I, I honestly thought when I started through flight training, which, you know, knowing was going to take about probably two years to do all of it, uh, pretty much uh, Nixon had promised that the war would be over, you know, by the time I would get my wings. Well, I was a little bit surprised that didn't happen, but went to AOCS in uh, Pensacola, uh, softly, then Meridian, and then uh, Kingsville, Texas, uh, got my wings the summer of 69, and then from there to uh, Air Force training the RAG out of uh, Jacksonville, Florida in the fall of 69. And then uh, they were, uh, I already had orders to a squadron, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, when I'd gotten orders to A4s after getting my wings, they actually gave me orders to a West Coast squadron that was deployed because I said that in my dream sheet that we fill out that the, the one thing that I really wanted to do was be able to go to the West Coast. I didn't want to be an East Coast sailor. And uh, so I got orders to the West Coast. Once I got to the RAG in Jacksonville, VA-44, uh, found out they were going to must pump a bunch of us to get us out to the ship early. So uh, I ended up, uh, there were about five or six of us, ended up joining the Hancock in uh, the in spring of 69, I'm, I'm sorry, the spring of 70, uh, for the, we got there right at the end of the 69-70 crews to be involved in uh, in combat ops, ops for that one, uh, one line period there. So I kind of got my feet, um, got my toes in the water, you know, just by uh, getting in on a few of those missions there to begin with. And on that dream sheet you mentioned, was uh, the A-4 Skyhawk on that dream sheet? Is that the plane you wanted to get into or just what you got assigned? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of, I, well, coming out of college, I wanted to fly the A-4. I used to have a poster in my, uh, in my, in the room in my fraternity house and it was, showed an A-4 on the catapult. And so I always had my, my eyes on that. While I was going through flight training, uh, a lot of my peers were all fired up. They wanted to fly the Phantom, you know, and, and that just had no, I had no desire for that. And the real key that I was looking for was that I wanted to fly a single seater. Uh, I, I didn't really care to fly two seat aircraft. So on my dream sheet, honestly, the first choice had been A7s West Coast and then A4s West Coast and then F8s uh, just so I could be a single seat guy. But I'm so grateful that I got the attack role. Um, I'm grateful I got the uh, the A4. Um, I eventually became an A7 pilot too. But uh, I was just glad to have gone that route. You know, I, the A4 was just an absolutely fantastic airplane, and of course we'll talk about that probably a little bit more when we get into the blue stuff. But well, yeah, sure. I mean, the A4 is a light attack aircraft. So in Vietnam. I I'm assuming it's it's made to go short distance and do uh, perhaps bombing and uh, ground runs, but not necessarily made for for dogfighting. Is that an accurate description of the A4? Yes, Ryan, that's right. Um, the A4 was really a light attack aircraft, air to mud. Uh, the role that we did over there was initially when I, over my first. I had three tours over there. Uh, my first one was a short one, only a couple months long, and then I went back for two nine month cruises. 
And uh, those first two, the short one and the, and the next long one, were mostly uh, interdiction into Laos, going after uh, trucks that were on the trail, you know, the supplies that were being run from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. And, uh, and that aircraft, you know, it would carry six 500-pound bombs on those normal on that normal type of, of, uh, you know, missions. When I went back for the third tour, uh, each tour was separated by about five months in between on a turnaround. We're based out of Lemoore, California. The ship was out of, uh, Alameda, uh, the Hancock was, and, uh, the ship actually comprised of, uh, three A4 squadrons and two F8 squadrons. And then the early warning outfit and helicopter. And, uh, <clears throat> the A4 guys, you know, we were strictly air to mud, and we didn't carry anything except guns for any kind of air to air if we were ever going to run into that kind of an issue. The fighters on board were the F8s, and of course they carried sidewinders and guns. So now my third tour was the one that got pretty interesting uh, because we were that was for the the uh, in 1972, and we we took off on that cruise in uh, in January of of uh, 72. I actually transpacked uh, an A4 over. There were, that's kind of a long story in itself, but uh, once we got in combat in uh, February, um, the North Vietnamese were making a big push for an invasion in 72, which actually, you know, looking back at history now and everything, it was much bigger than the invasion of Tet in 1968. We always hear about the Tet invasion because we had a lot of troops on the ground over there, and uh, obviously, um, you know, that, uh, all the hype talked about that huge invasion. Well, the 72 invasion, which is referred to as the spring invasion, Easter invasion of 1972, started the 30th of March, and it was about three times as large as the had been uh, invasion had been in 68. So up to that point, we'd only been flying with about two aircraft carriers off uh, the coast of Vietnam, off Yankee Station. And with that buildup, or and with that uh, invasion from the north, now our buildup started, and we didn't send troops back in, but we sent aviation units from Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps uh, to thwart that invasion because air air was what we really need to stop that supplies of, of both troops and uh, and man, and all the ammunition, all the supplies and stuff that was working south. So by so from between March of '72 and June of '72, they went from two aircraft carriers to six, working in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, of course, we were rotating in and out on our line periods, and then they increased. They I, I forget what the whole number was that they increased the uh, Air Force uh, squadrons that were moving back in and Marine Corps squadrons that all went back. And now when we started flying those uh, North Vietnam missions in uh, April 72, um, we, our particular squadron was VA-55, and we had six specially configured aircraft that had just come to us for that cruise that were iron, what we referred to as Iron Hand aircraft, and they were the same, on the same level as the Wild Weasels in the Air Force. We were there strictly for anti-radiation uh, missile shoots to shut down the SAM, the surface-to-air missile uh, problem we had up in the north. And, of course, there are surface-to-air missile sites all over the place. And the way that mission worked was that during our major alpha strikes, which 25 to 30 airplanes going into a target, um, there would be two to four or even six of us that were flying these Iron Hand uh, flights 
that would fly in ahead. We'd launch, detach ahead of the uh, strike group, go in toward wherever the threat was at, wherever the, the SAM threats were at, and uh, cover the strike force. If SAMs were fired, well, then we fired back at them with our surface, with our air-to-surface missiles, the uh, Shrike uh, and the radiation missiles. We'd shoot back at them. And our six special config, specially configured aircraft were pretty cool in the fact that once the missile left the aircraft, we still had a radar that could actually detect the emitting site from the ground where the surface air missile site was at. So if we didn't see the SAM launch off a off, off the launch pad with a big plume of smoke and fire and see the smoke trail coming up at us, we could actually pick it up by radar and then transfer that image from the radar panel up to the gun site and look down through the gun site. We could get a pretty good area of, uh, of where, the, where that SAM site was at. Obviously, they're all hidden in the trees. They, you know, camouflaged heavily and stuff like that. But once we had a good idea of where it was, then our weapon of choice to go back in and bomb them was the rock eye uh, CBUs, uh, cluster bomb units that would cover about the size. Each bomb, each bomb, would cover about the size of a football field. So you lay one of those out, and if there were SAMs either on launchers or in storage or whatever. There was huge secondary explosions from, so you know you had a, had a good kill. So that was our mission then in '72. And as you sit here today, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think about. At some point in your life, you were probably one of a very small population on this earth that's had a missile, or I should say, missiles fired at them, and you're here today talking about it. That's pretty crazy to think about, right? Well, it is, and you know, and you know, as we were, as I thought about this over the years and stuff, and one of the things that was really kind of fun. This past summer, it's been what forty-eight years now since uh, that 1972 period when we when we flew. Well, we had a squadron party, uh, and there were sixteen pilots of, of us that had flown in seventy-one uh, and seventy-two uh, in that squadron. We met here at our house in, in Gig Harbor, and uh, you know it, it, it was so uh, so soothing to be able to actually sit back and talk with each other about what had happened because. And we lost some guys, you know, on the ship. They were either shot down, killed, or, or prisoner of war. And, uh, you know, and so when you did that on a daily basis, you know, often and most of the time it was twice a day, sometimes three times. And uh, it, to, to be here now, you know, almost 50 years later, uh, you know, I mean, it's just God's grace the way I look at it. And I guess it should be noticed for, noted for the podcast that you received several distinguished flying crosses for that 1972 tour. Yeah, it's so funny how the how medals were given out. You know, that first couple of cruises that I was on, um, you know, you, you might get a Navy commendation medal if you if something you know kind of worked right. But by the time we started working back up in North Vietnam again, uh, and particularly in the kind of work I guess we were doing, I don't know, I ended up with a couple of distinguished flying crosses and I had like thirty nine air medals, of which like eleven of them were for individual action and and then another like nine Navy commendation medals with uh with combat V and then all the other, you know, trinkets that went right along with it. And uh <laughs> it was uh it, you know, it's just those that it's kind of the luck of the draw, you know, just where you just happen to be at the wrong time at the right time or right time at the wrong time, whatever. And one of the things that really interests me about that time period in uh, aviation history, I guess you could say naval aviation history and Blue Angel history, is that a lot of the Blue Angels that served on the Blue Angels then went back to the fleet and right back into combat. Did you run into any 
former Blue Angel pilots, I know you're pretty busy in 1972, but for example, did you run into Harley Hall or any of the, the outgoing members of the Blue Angels while you were uh, out there in 1972? You know, I did not. Uh, I really didn't know anybody uh, at that point. I mean, the blues was just kind of like, a, not, it was even an afterthought in my, in my head, I guess, because obviously at that point in my career, I, I thought there was no way I was I would ever even think about going to the blues because I thought that was so far out of my out of my head now of course you know in the years since i've met all the guys you know that came through there were a lot of uh you know people that came back particularly for that 72 cruise when harley was shot down he was shot down 73 obviously but um but ernie christensen was back over there uh, uh maslowski um i didn't i didn't know i didn't and specifically to that question i didn't know anybody uh at that particular time that personally that had been on the blues. So after your deployment in 1972, uh, where did you go? Well, because of my experience with uh, Iron Hand and uh, going after the SAM sites and everything, I was fortunate enough to get orders to China Lake, California to, uh, for it's a research and development base. And when I checked in and they found out my background and everything, and of course, when I was assigned there, I was just going to be a project pilot. And then they found out my background, so I became the uh, anti-radiation project officer. And the really the cool part about that was that I was right off the bat, I was assigned the HARM, the high-speed anti-radiation missile, which is which is being used today. And that was just right at the ground floor of that. And in the two years that I was there before I went to the Blues, uh, I got to fire the first eleven uh, HARM shots, and those were both those were all off A7. And, uh, and then work on other weapons that were there. So it was uh, all air-to-ground weapons work, new rock eye, the wall eye. Um, so it was a, a great experience. And it was just fun flying. I mean, we would fly usually twice a day. I might fly an A7 in the morning and an A, and an A4 in the afternoon. Or, and uh, just got all kinds of flight time. And, and just probably the most fun flying, I know it was, it was the most fun flying that I had of my you know, Navy career. So eventually you had the desire or were encouraged to submit an application for the Blue Angels. Yeah, the way that kind of came about, okay, I got there, you know, the end of 72 and uh, the Blues were still flying F-4s. So 73 comes around and uh, they've got their F-4s out there. And and, uh, at that point, uh, a friend of mine from the Hancock was Jerry Tucker. Uh, We'd been friends since the training command. And we'd been close friends out on Hancock. He was an F-8 driver. Well, he'd made the team in 73. And uh, so I thought, well, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So I, I watched him, you know, go to the team, thinking that was, that, that was really a neat thing. But still wasn't thinking anything about it until uh, the, the F-4 accident then in uh, 73 and the guys got killed and stuff. Okay, so, you know, then when they made the decision to go to the A-4, uh, make – select that well i kind of got this burr up my bottom and i thought hey this is kind of kind of a cool idea i know jerry and and i like the a4 and so i talked to my wife about it and you know and asked her what she thought and i've had this incredibly uh supportive uh woman all my life and uh she'd said if that's what you want to do well then go for it so i the minute the the way i played that one out I didn't even know if I really wanted to go to the blues because, I mean, I'd looked at the whole life thing, you know, back when I had watched them as a student and then uh, going through terrain command and everything, I saw them both in F-11s and in F-4s. 
And, you know, it just looked like it was something that was totally out of my reach. You know, I, I didn't know. I thought, gosh, maybe they're a bunch of prima donnas. And, you know, it just didn't look like anything. And I, I'm a farm kid. You know, I'm, I didn't think <laughs> there was any way that I could even, you know, go along that line. Until I'd seen the fact that Jerry had made the team. And I thought, he, he's a regular guy. So I took a cross, my first cross country that I took out of uh, China Lake in the spring of 74, the Blues had just gotten their A4s, and they were at winter training. And uh, and I decided I'd go down and see them and meet up with Jerry and, you know, tell him that, yeah, I was kind of looking at it, you know, and, and I seeing about making formal application. And, uh, you know, as I met the guys, and we went out to dinner at night, and, you know, and I started, I had that weekend of palling around with them, and I found out, you know, they're just like regular guys. They're just like all the guys that I knew in the fleet. They're really cool. And... Uh, Still didn't really think, you know, well, this is going to be a real lark to probably, you know, make application. But um, And one of the things that I even encourage today, and when I've talked to the active duty naval aviators, I said, you know, one of the best times to get up to meet the team the first time is go to winter training and meet up with them in winter training. Because what I saw there, and I ended up going twice to winter training to be with them to, you know, get my first foot in the door to see what they were all about. You know, they're, they're at their most humble flying experiences because, you know, you're training and, uh, you know, you, you haven't gotten the hype yet of all the, the news and the press and all that stuff that goes around with the normal season. So I did that. And then as once they started in the season in 74, then, of course, you're encouraged to go, you know, to other show sites so they get to know you a little bit better and, and you can see what they do. And so I did that. I went to. I think two or th- I think I went to about three, or maybe four more shows up until about the summer of '74. And uh, one of the things that was really fun about that was that uh, one guy in particular, Bill Hoverstadt, who ended up making the team uh, as a Marine rep, and he and I were both on the team together uh, in '75 and '76. Uh, he was an applicant at the same time I was, and we he was a, an instructor down in uh, Beeville, Texas, and we'd call each other up and find out, you know about going to chase the blues that weekend and uh, go someplace. And so we'd meet up and, and then we would, you know, do our formal stuff that we had to do with the blues, you know, like going to the, to the briefs and hanging around them a little bit, you know, if there was a dinner or something like that, but we were just kind of there to just have a good time on our own. And we just enjoyed ourselves so much that it turned out to be a fun thing. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, as an applicant, that's really a cool way to go. You know, I'm, I'm really liking this. Uh, but that summer, I, and I'd been to the uh, Salt Lake show. Bill and I were both at that Salt Lake show, show in, uh, in June or July of 74. And I came home and I told my wife, Ann, I said, you know, I said, that's it. I'm not going to chase the team anymore. I had met all these guys that I'm competing with, you know, and they were superstars. I mean, they're, they're great guys and stuff like that. They're coming out of the F4 community and the A7 community and stuff. And I'm just an A4 guy, you know, that, you know, did what I did that, you know, I didn't think was very significant. And so I quit going to the, uh, I quit going to shows at that point because I honestly didn't think I had a really a snail's chance in hell to get picked up. Oh, that's incredible. So when did uh, you find out you made the team? Well, it was about a month later, about five weeks later, they'd made their selections. And of course, you know, I went through that whole thing and I don't know if I'm telling stories out of school now or not uh, about what the team's doing now about in the selection process, but I know I've told this story a lot when people ask about what it was like making the team. 
And I was sitting in my office. I had a, I had a desk at project's office there. And uh, I got a call from Jerry Tucker. And Jerry called and he said, ah, Denny, he says, I thought I'd call and tell, tell you that, you know, that we had selections for the team. And, of course, initially my heart started to soar a little bit. And he said, but I just wanted to call you and tell you, you know, well, you didn't make the team this year. You know, we really liked you a lot, but, you know, we really think you ought, we really want you to apply again next year. You know, come back for, you know, make application for the next year. I said, yeah, okay, fine. Well, I pretty much decided in my head at that point I wasn't going to make the team anyway. And I was thinking about my career and where I was going with the Navy. I was about ready to get orders and stuff coming up here in the future. And, and I was thinking about A7s back at Lamore and, you know, just pressing on my life. And, uh, and then he started talking about some of the things that I need to work on, you know, that, well, you know, you've got some social issues, you know, that you need to work on a little bit. And your flying ability, you know, there's some, you know, you might want to, you know, you might want to get a little, <laughs> do some improvement here and there. And, I, and I'm about to just hang up on him because I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to apply anyway. And then it's the game that they played down there where everybody gets on a, on an extension on the other line and, they all pick up the phone, and next thing you hear, and the, the welcome aboard, uh, asshole. <laughs> and uh, so, and I mean, I was absolutely floored. I mean, I was shocked. I had I had had a stack of uh, messages that were on my lap when I'd been reading through when Jerry called me. They all fell on the floor. I mean, I was just absolutely stunned. And uh, so he, he gave me a little bit more information. Then I hung up. And then I, I thought about it for about five minutes or so, and I thought, you know, he's jerking me around again. I think he's screwing with me. So I called him back up and I said, Jerry, tell me. what's." And, of course, his call sign was Turkey. I said, Turkey, tell me. What was the real story? You know, yeah, yeah, you made the team. You need to be down here in 30 days. So now I've got an issue because um, just a few days before that, I had bought this old 59 Corvette from a kid over at the hobby shop that was in pieces. And uh, now I, and he told me I had to be in Pensacola in 30 days. So I've got to figure out how I'm going to get this uh, Corvette back in battery, you know, so I can use it. Because that's what I'm going to end up driving across country. And uh, my wife likes to tell a story about how the next thing she sees me dragging this, uh, this car home in parts. And I spent the next 30 days building it back together or putting it back together, get ready to drive down there. But one of the things that's interesting about the day they called me, that was on a Monday. It was when it, it was what I remember, maybe Monday or Tuesday. It's when they got back, you know, back into uh, Pensacola. Well, I called up everybody I everybody on the base there at, uh, at um, China Lake, BX-5, the Naval Weapons Center, uh, NAF. Anybody that's around, I said, I'm having a keg party at my house tonight. Uh, so I went home, told my wife, I said, well, we're going to, we're going to expect some people by it. So we had a, we had a real celebration that evening. It was really fun because then over the next couple of years, I ended up flying, uh, air shows, uh, both years at China Lake. So, you know, to go back and show those people that I thought so much of, you know, when I was based there, it was great. And when they called you to let you know, you're going to be on the blue angels, did they tell you you were going to be a solo pilot or did you find that out later? No, I found that right after I made, they made selections and I was going to make the team. I think they were getting ready to, they were flying the next weekend, they were flying a show down in um, Miramar. So I went down to Miramar to be with them and uh, had dinner with them. And the way I found out, uh, we were eating this really fancy restaurant and I was sitting next to Vance and Vance says, oh, by the way, you're going to be my opposing solo pilot. And I'm going, 
oh, wow. I mean, you know, because when I was first selected, I thought, I don't have a clue what they're going to do with me. You know, I mean, I, in fact, I didn't know. I, I really hadn't paid that much attention to what the whole situation was about being a diamond pilot, solo pilot, the narrator, whatever. I was just, the whole thing was thinking about making the team. So then that's how it worked out. Vance told me that, yeah, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be working with him. And that's Vance Parker you're talking about. So you go down to Pensacola. How does training start? Uh, do you get a ride in the back seat, or do they just get you up flying right away? No, since I came into the – I was I was the first fleet junior officer, I guess, to come in to the Blues that had been an A-4 pilot. You know, and so I was, and I was current in the A4. The leaders before me, like Tony Less, obviously he was, uh, he'd been an A4 pilot before he uh, went to A7s and then came to the Blues as a boss. In my case, they just gave me an airplane and somebody chased me, and they just knew I, I didn't go into, I didn't get into the T at all that I remember. And I was looking at my logbook, and and so being able to fly, and Bill Hoverstock came in the same way. Uh, he was already A4 qualified when he came to Bill. So the two of us uh, got to fly the spare. Uh, I think we swapped off maybe, or in any case, there was about three or four more weekends worth of air shows uh, when we got there in October. And uh, so in November, October and November, I was flying uh, their spare airplanes to, I know we went to Jacksonville and Key West and New Orleans and stuff like that. So I started flying immediately but not any kind of training because, you know, maybe you've heard from others, you know, too, that listen to this sort of thing. When we're selected to the team and you come in, you know, you don't wear a blue suit until, until you're ready to actually get on the team, until you're, your team is going to be announced in, at the end of the, of the season. So uh, I would wear my, my normal khaki uniform to the show sites and stand in the background. Uh, we weren't introduced. We were just there as observers. And so we just kind of hung around and watched what was going on. Now, at this point, too, we got, we, uh, they started having us go to the debrief also. So we'd go to the brief, watch the show, do the debrief. And then, you know, the whole idea was to be able to think about, okay, what's your position going to be? So, I mean, I'm paying a, a lot of attention to uh, Vance because he's finishing up his 1974 season as number six. And I'm watching what he's doing and knowing that that's what I'm going to have to be doing. And I swear, I got, you know, I looked at it and I kept thinking, am I really capable of doing this? Can I, <laughs> it's like when you go to the carrier the first time and you're flying overhead at 10,000 feet and you're looking down that little postage stamp and you're saying, and you're saying to yourself, can I really, am I capable of being able to do this? You know? And uh, so I had a lot of doubt in my mind as to, you know, <laughs> If it was going to really work. And speaking of which, so then you go out to El Centro, and that's when the real work starts. How was your first winter training? Well, even before winter training, uh, as, once the season ended in November, I looked at my logbook to just kind of make clarify where it was at. We were flying once and twice a day through December, all the way up to like December 23rd I had in my logbook. And Vance at that point was my leader, and uh, we would go to – we would – Started initial solo training, running the beach oh, 20 miles or so to the west of Pensacola. We had a stretch of beach down there that we could operate off of. And uh, it all started with timing. And that was probably the biggest crux of what we had to do. You know, obviously the, the formation guys had to learn how to fly good, solid, tight formation. For the solos, it was being able to get timing down. You wanted to be able to, and when you think about a show site and how it works, um, a center point is set up, 
And then uh, there's a film crew at the center point all the time. And you have a checkpoint at either side of center point. And hopefully that center point is going to be on a flight line of some sort, like maybe a runway would even be the best. Sometimes that doesn't work. If it was over water sites or something like that, they might have a couple of boats out there and you'd line those up, but you had a line that you used. And so that center point was critical in that all our maneuvers in 75, 76, and I'm not sure what the day's like or anything, but for the solos, we had to be at that center point at 400 knots on a nose-to-nose hip for whatever the maneuver was going to be. So timing was critical. You know, we started the timing from back behind the crowd at some point. Lead solo's job would be to start the clock and say, okay, stand by, mark. And when he said mark, we both started our clocks. And at 30 seconds past that mark, we needed to be two miles from center point at 100 feet and 400 knots. And so we, so the whole thing with, with the uh, running the flight line for timing was just over and over and over and repetition, repetition, repetition before we even really started any maneuvers. And then the only other maneuver that I guess that I really started at before I left Pensacola to go to winter training was learning to fly inverted. And I'd flown inverted, you know, in the, in, uh, on active duty, you know, and, and when I would, just for fun, you know, uh, all of us would go out sometimes and you'd take an airplane and you roll it upside down and just hold one negative G and just fly, try to fly straight level. But the aircraft limitation was only for like 30 seconds, so you didn't do it very long and you didn't do very much either because the airplanes were filthy and uh, you'd get all this stuff floating, you know, that had been laying at the bottom of the airplane, you roll it upside down, now it all comes down and lands on the top of the canopy and you roll the right side up and it all drops in your lap and stuff. So it's one way to find screws and bolts and stuff like, hopefully not tools. But So I had to learn to fly inverted there on that flight line. And uh, Vance would fly behind me and he'd say, you know, I'd roll inverted. And the critical part about inverted flight uh, was that you had to be able to roll the aircraft around its axis without displacing left or right. And so if you think about it as an aviator, you know, you kind of you want to pull back on the stick just a tiny bit. The A4 had this incredible roll rate, you know, 200, or 720 degrees per second roll rate. So you could snap over inverted position just immediately. But you didn't want to, typically people, when you roll inverted, you're, and you'll move to the left. If you're rolling left, you're going to move to the left somewhat. So he was behind me, and we started these maneuvers to begin with at 1,000 feet. And, uh, you know, just trying to get a judge for being able to roll inverted and then stay level. And then over the days, uh, I would move it lower and lower and lower until probably, I probably didn't get down to much more, maybe 300 feet or so above the ground when we were still over the beach at, uh, in Pensacola before we went to winter training. Then, of course, once we went to winter training, now once we got out there in January, now we started to get in, into serious uh, training uh, twice a day, sometimes three times a day of doing these maneuvers with repetition over and over and over again. Um, you know, honing that skill of being able to roll the aircraft right around its axis to the inverted position. And then whatever other maneuvers you were going to do, which was knife edge, uh, four point roll, um, horizontal rolls. And those were the opposing maneuvers that we would we would do. And you're spending a lot of your time with Vance. Do you become closer with Vance than you do the Diamond Pilots, or do you all stay pretty close as far as just personal relationships? The personal relationship, I think, started, you know, obviously at winter training 
was going to be Vance and I because we we spent all our waking hours together. It seemed like because once we would do our two or three flights a day out in, out in the desert, well then Vance had never played tennis before, and I came in playing tennis, and so every afternoon for three to four hours all afternoon we'd play tennis, and he became just an of course he's an incredible athlete, and he just became this incredible tennis player. And then with the other guys, uh, you know, the diamond, uh, our, our relationship was so close there. And also in that, uh, you know, once all our duties were over for the day and we were into playing foursomes on tennis, um, there was smoke, John Jahansky and, uh, John Patton. And, uh, we would, you know, and then after all the athletic stuff was over about five o'clock in the afternoon, well, we'd all as a group go into El Centro, there's just a dozens of Mexican restaurants all over. So six nights a week, we would go to a, uh, a Mexican restaurant for dinner, drink a bunch of beers and stuff, then be back to BOQ about eight or nine o'clock and just really sock it in, you know, just whipped for the, from all the exertion of the day. Then the next morning, morning started at 5 a.m. We'd be in, be down uh, for first, the diamond would do, for one week, the diamond would do, the first launch in the morning, which would be like 6 a.m. or something like that. And then, uh, and then solos would brief. And then we, then after the diamond came back and landed after about an hour, hour and 15 minute flight, then the solos would go out and Vance and I go out and we'd work the area for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then back and land. Then diamond go back out again while Vance and I are debriefing what we had done earlier. And so that just went on day after day, 13 days in a row. And then we would take one day off, one Sunday off. Uh, and just try to get our head straight a little bit, I guess, and have some fun, and then back into it for another solid 13 days. So we did that for about two and a half months, uh, you know, solid January, February, March, and then started our first air show. That two and a half months, you're away from your wife that whole time? We are, and that was a tradition that the Blues had, and I guess it started way back when. It was something that, you know, it was really hard to take. I guess, because here we are in the U.S. And, you know, it's one thing when we were gone either in the Mediterranean or, or Vietnam or whatever, you know, when we're going on a nine-month cruise, <clears throat> you get used to that. But so, you know, we were separated for that time. And, of course, back in those days, it cost a lot of money for phone calls. And I wasn't a very good <laughs> writer, you know, so I didn't do very good for writing letters and everything. I never did even a cruise. So... So we didn't get a chance to, you know, see our wives until we got home. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that was that was tough. Gotcha. So you uh, you finish winter training successfully. You go on to have your first air show. A lot of the Blues I've spoken with said the first air show is the over, over the field show in El Centro. And to many, they said, eh, it, it didn't really count because you flew there so often. And they would say the first real air show was Yuma, Arizona. Uh, is that your account of how your first air show with the Blue Angels went? Yes. Yeah, it did. Uh, so my first year when I was number six, <clears throat> that's what the way it was. And so going to that air show was different i mean it was a it's what they call a remote show so we actually took off out of el centro flew over to yuma to fly the show and then went back and landed back at el centro and it gave our ground troops and everything an opportunity to kind of you know get get their ducks in order too um so yeah that was it, it was a uh it was an experience just seeing something different you know and i don't remember a whole lot about it i mean it just 
It was still a runway to fly down, so it wasn't anything that was too far out of the ordinary. And, and then, honestly, when you think about the whole, <clears throat> I know one of the thoughts is the, the big difference between number five and six, because as number six, I just had to match what number five did. So whatever, I was always tagging along with somebody, you know, so like the boss would definitely, uh, number one, the boss would have difficult you know, issues, maybe going with a new show site, you know, week after week after week, learning all that. And number five does too, and learning the flight line and everything. But as far as number six, you know, whatever he set, I was there to match. And, you know, so it actually, I don't know, I, I didn't think it was really all that difficult. So it's being on easy street if you are the opposing solo in your first year. It really is. And uh, yeah, an issue. Yeah, it, it, I didn't realize how easy it was, I guess until I got into being lead solo the next year. I know you said you don't remember much about your first air show. Do you remember your nerves at all? Were you particularly nervous for that Yuma show, or you don't remember? You know, I don't really remember. Uh, I mean, I think I had, I think probably had nervous about any air show, for that matter. And, you know, I, I think it was like, because you want to do your best, you don't want to step on your foot anywhere along the line. So, you know, everything I was going to be concerned about, I, I don't remember it. I, I, I was not nonchalant about it, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, one could probably argue, given the, your previous uh, experience in the Navy getting uh, missiles shot at you and landing on a carrier at night might make seeming flying an air show much easier. Well, it really did. You know, and you're right in that thing with the comparison. That goes back to that whole thing when you're, uh, when you're in combat and you're getting shot out by missiles or guns or whatever and everything. You see AAA going around your cockpit. Then the next thing, you have to go back out to the ship. And now you get back out the ship. And so say it's a night night landing and it's, you know, 500 foot overcast and it's raining and the, and the seas are really rough and the deck is pitching up and down like crazy. Well, that made the combat stuff look like a piece of cake. So, and I wouldn't say that, you know, doing our air show stuff was a piece of cake at all, but but it certainly was not. <laughs> it didn't have near the uh, chest thumping or the the heavy breathing, I guess, to it that the, 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 the super uh, ex- emotional excitement, I guess, that combat and then landing on carriers (laughs) as you move through that uh, 1975 season are there any other shows that stick out in your memory as as just being memorable or or a fun show site or you met someone that uh, had an impact on you one of my big things in my first year on the team was that i always wanted to meet all the old solo pilots whatever where we were flying a show it was really important for me to get to know those guys. And of course, I can say I knew Jerry Tucker. You know, I got to know quite a few of the other guys as we hit, hit the different show sites throughout the year. And I always wanted to pick their brain. It was important for me to be able to understand what they had gone through, what they had done. And uh, <laughs> one guy in particular that I was just scared to death to meet. And he, was, he had been a Marine solo pilot back in maybe the early 60s, I guess it was. This fellow's name was John Kretzinger. And, uh, of course, he turned out to just be a gym, you know, and uh, just a super guy. You know, you hear, you hear stories about people. Lou Chatham, you know, was a guy that I was so grateful to. I had heard about Lou Chatham for years. Uh, Vietnam days, he was skipper of a, uh, <clears throat> of a squadron of A-7s over on, um, I believe it was Midway. I can't remember what carrier. He had been a solo pilot back in 63 and 64 or something like that. And so I was just, he was one that I, I really, really wanted to meet. Other people that I got to meet, you know, Pappy Boyington, Art Scholl, Bob Hoover. I mean, guys that I had incredible respect for as aviators. And then I was really a motorhead as a kid growing up. You know, loved cars, loved to race and all this sort of stuff. So Don Gartlitz was a drag racer. 
and he was one of the first guys I got a chance to meet. And, and Johnny Rutherford was an Indy 500 uh, uh, driver. Those were the highlights for actually through both my years uh, in talking to those guys. Did you have any particular maneuvers that you liked flying more than others? Well, if you get into the second year, uh, yes, there was, and and it got, and I. This is kind of interesting in that uh, when in for the '76 team, I was going to be uh, number five lead solo. Johnny Miller was coming on as the opposing solo. I didn't really know about Johnny that much. I just knew he had this great reputation as an A6 pilot in the fleet and everything. So we, I picked him to be my opposing solo pilot. Back in those days, uh, the way you picked who was going to be your your opposing solo is that how number six got selected was that the boss and number five, the new number five, would sit down and talk about who they wanted, who actually who number one, number five wanted to have as his opposing solo. That's why I was always I'll always be so totally grateful to Vance because he you know uh, he he and the boss uh, Tony Less were the ones that selected me to be number six then on that team and and so then now the next year comes along and so now we've got a new boss and uh it's going to be casey jones and uh same thing you know they uh, so johnny was going to be my opposing solo and i remember going to to uh, casey right at the very beginning of winter training and i asked him i said uh you know what do you want to hear from me what do you want me to do uh and and what i'm doing in my solo minutes because we're we operate independently uh, the diamond and the solo for about a month and the diamond goes off and does their old home thing for about a month. And the solos are doing their thing for about a month. And then before we finally start putting it together with the air show and putting Delta maneuvers together, the six of us. So, uh, and, uh, boss Jones said, you know, he says, I don't want to hear from you. You just go off and do your thing. And, uh, he says, I got enough. It, it was his first year on the team. And so he's got a lot to learn his, in his own right. So, Johnny and I really had a free hand in being able to do whatever we wanted to do. So this kind of went back to what I had started at the end of the season in 75 when I was finished up at number six. And I would take Johnny out uh, in December of 75 when we were doing the uh, timing maneuvers, getting all set up on the timing maneuvers. Well, I wanted to try some new maneuvers, right? So one of the things that was popular at that a movie that was popular at that time was the great Waldo Pepper. And in the movie, it's a, you know, he's a, he's a 1920s barnstormer and he does an outside loop. <clears throat> and so I thought, man, that would be really cool to be able to do an outside loop. And uh, so I went at, at on, off the beach there and I started at 5,000 feet at the bottom and I was at 400 knots and I max power rolled inverted and did an outside loop um, all the way around to the bottom. And it was very uncomfortable in the fact that the A4 has got this real long nose on it. And so as you're coming down the backside of that loop and you're coming through 90 degrees straight nose down and you're still continuing to push forward. And of course, the ground's starting to grow up, go underneath you. And you can't see out over the nose because it's so long. I'm, all I'm looking at is straight down. So in order to get the bottom set up, I have to look out of both sides of the cockpit in order to, to make the bottom. Well, I was gradually coming down so much at three negative G's that I just couldn't, I couldn't make the bottom right in front of the show where show center point would be. So I knew that that wasn't going to work. So I thought, well, okay, the next bet would be then to try the outside roll. <clears throat> so uh, I wouldn't, the, the other part, even backing up to all this, I had to check and make sure, first of all, that the A4 could fly inverted for that long. And so one way I did it was I took an airplane out at, 
5,000 feet, went to full power, rolled inverted, and flew for about three and a half minutes, and the airplane didn't flame out, so I knew it was probably going to, I could, you know, I think the longest maneuver we did were the outside hip half Cuban eights, and they were uh, about 90 seconds long to do those. And so I knew that that wasn't going to send it. So now I still want to get more inverted maneuvers in, and that's why I kind of, I really, really enjoyed that kind of stuff. And so I'd start the roll, and it was a barrel roll. It started on the deck, and uh, I used Johnny to be underneath me in a back-to-back formation. So I'm upside down, Johnny's underneath me, and as we start up into the uh, end of the roll, it's only about a two and a half negative G push up into the into a barrel roll, but you're over the top at about 2,500 to 3,000 feet at center point, and then you continue pushing down. So when you get to the top of that, you know, of course, I'm right side up, still in negative G, but I'm right side up, and Johnny's underneath me, inverted. Now as, we, now, as I continue to push on down through the inverted position to the bottom, you know, I bottom again, you know, about a half mile or so out in front of the crowd line, because this was angled. Instead of coming straight down the flight line, it was angled from behind the crowd, so where I would bottom out in front of the crowd at some point. And uh, so that was probably, you know, one of the favorite things that I put into the show. So um, in the first year, one of the things that I used to get scolded for was um, we'd be on a cross country someplace going somewhere. And of course, Boss Les was was in the lead, flying along at 10,000 feet. And and out of boredom, I would just roll upside down. And and I learned how to fly inverted formation um, that way on on cross country flights. Of course, Boss would see me out there and he'd holler, Denny, get right side up, you know back in position, whatever. But I learned that flying upside down in formation was a little bit tricky in the fact that when you think about the stick control, if you're upright in an aircraft and you want to go closer to the airplane that you're flying wing on, you put the stick toward them, right? So it's just pretty simple in that respect. But when you're upside down, when you're inverted and you want to get closer to the airplane you're flying wing on, you have to put the stick away from them. So you know, you have to think about, well, what am I going to do in extremis if all of a sudden I get excited, you know, and, and something happens in a hurry. And, uh, you know, when I'm flying close formation on somebody, you know, flying in maybe five or six feet away, I don't want to be, I don't want to put the stick in the wrong direction and fly into them. So, but I learned by holding the stick and wings level, putting the stick in the center position, holding the wings level, and then just using the rudder to go in and out, back and forth, moving, moving my nose left and right, you know, would get my, my, close my distance to my wingman. So what Johnny and I developed was that he would fly upside down in the lead position as number six, and then I would fly off his wing uh, outboard of him, uh, in his, behind him, and then we would approach the, the uh, air show site, the center point, in that fashion, and then we would do what was called a double tuck over break. And so we would roll 270 degrees back to the upright, rolling to the left. So it was something that, um, that was something I was always really proud of that maneuver. Are those still in the demo today or are they no longer in the demo? No, you know, the double tuck overs, some teams in the F-18s have been able to do it. And and here's the whole key, I'll go back to, I'm gonna give credit to Bruce Davey who brought in the double farvel, which is the case where the diamond comes by, the boss is upside down already. I mean, we did that back, you know, in our day where the boss was upside down and the three wingmen were right side up on his wing. But in 79, when Bruce Davey was going to take over uh, as slot pilot, he was going to move into the slot. 
he and I were talking and he wanted to know how I did the inverted formation because he would like to go inverted in the slot. And so I told him that trick. I said, just roll inverted, keep your wings level, don't even think about stick control, you know, uh, banking, just use your rudders to go left and right, you know, on center point. So he started that in 79 and the Blues have done that ever since. The F-18s still do that. It's one of my, well, it's probably my, it is my favorite uh, diamond, diamond maneuver because they're actually upside down. I really like that. But uh, no, as far as the other maneuvers, uh, the F-18, the A's that they've got now did not have the fuel capability or uh, they had so many limitations to it that they weren't able to have that extended inverted time like we did because... I mean, even in, you know, from, from all the years on, from 63 on, and I'll, I'll go back to uh, um, Lou Chatham again. I want to give him credit for him having learned to do the first outside half Cuban eight and uh, three negative G push out uh, in the F-11. He also did the first dirty roll on takeoff, too. So um, now when it, you know, with what Johnny and I did, we were able to keep those maneuvers in the A-4s. Uh, until they went into the F-18. Gotcha. And one maneuver that disappeared with the F-18 is that famous Delta landing the A-4s used to do. Can you talk us through your experience doing a Delta landing from a solo's perspective in the A-4? Yeah, it was interesting. First of all, for the takeoffs, for Delta takeoffs, you know, we were set up in a, in a finger four formation with six aircraft on the runway. So that puts everybody's wingtip is going to be cleared of the other for takeoff with the idea that, um, if anybody aborts, uh, worst case would of course be the boss aborting. The rest of us could still get by them, you know, wingtip clearance and get airborne. So on the takeoff roll, uh, the solos are on the outpost. Uh, number five is on the left side. Number six is on the right side. And our our tires, for me as number five, my left main mount would be pretty much right on the white line of a 200 foot wide runway, in order to make you know wingtip clearance. And uh, so that in itself was was pretty interesting. And then um, for landing, it was just the delta formation, and we just held formation all the way. And it was, you know, I mean, for solos or any of us, I guess, in the back row, you know, you've got one eye looking at the boss and one eye looking up ahead and then one eye looking kind of down at the runway. So you pretty much know when you're going to hit the runway. But there again, with the exception of the slot pilot, touchdown on touchdown, um, we had uh, wingtip clearance for the outpost for five and six, so we could get by. We could squeak by. Now it was going to be much more critical for the for the slot pilot because he's in the slot in the number four position, and uh, you know, and and he does not want to overrun the boss. That's interesting that you talk about the Delta takeoff. I've never seen any footage of a Delta takeoff, and I've heard one other, I think Scott Anderson mentioned it to me in passing. When would you guys do a Delta takeoff? Obviously not for an air show, right? No, there were cross countries, and, and here's a story for you. This is We're going through uh, Detroit uh, for a refueling stop, and I can't remember the name of the Air Force base that was there. So, And it was my second year on the team. Uh, Boss Jones was, was, was the leader. So we landed uh, to refuel, and... Uh, We'd gone into operations, and while we were in ops getting ready to go, you know, while the airplanes were getting fueled, the field socked in. I mean, it was zero, zero. And uh, I can tell this today because I think statute of limitations are all passed and everything, so nobody's in trouble. But, uh, so anyway, we go, we're thinking, okay, this stuff is going to burn off. It's not very deep. It's just a heavy ground fog. So we talked so talk to the boss and said, well, let's just go out and man up and 
So we manned up and we started up the engines and we decided, well, we might as well just taxi out to the end of the runway, you know, because it's still not clearing yet. So we get to the end of the runway and then boss asks for clearance onto the runway and we get on the runway in our, in our uh, four sh uh, six ship uh, takeoff position. And, uh, <laughs> and we told the, we kept telling the boss, listen, boss, you just play like now Navy pilots are allowed to take off zero, zero. That is, that's an authority that we have with those gold wings. Right. And so we told the boss, listen, you just make your takeoff just like you would normally in zero, zero conditions. And we'll just be on your wing, you know, so don't think about us. So, so, uh, and, and he's looking at what he can see down the runway and he says, well, I can see two center line lights in front of me, you know, so I can see the center line pretty much. We decided to make our takeoffs. So we take off and like in 200 feet in the air, we're in the clear. I mean, it was just this basic ground fog like they used to get in Lemoore. So we're airborne and we're climbing out. Don't think anything too much. We don't even think anything more about it, right? Until about a month later and we're passing back through Detroit again to refuel at that same air base. And uh, we go in and <laughs> the people in operations were just going ballistic. They could not believe it because, you know, what they hear is they hear the engines start up and they hear us taxi out. And then the next thing you hear is this giant roar and it's still zero, zero out and six jets are rolling down the runway. <laughs> We're airborne. <laughs> it was a fun one. That sounds like a fun one. I got a question for you. When the diamond would land in a diamond landing formation, how would the solos land? Would you land separately or would you land in an echelon formation? No, we, we landed together as a section. All our landings, if we had a 200-foot wide runway and we had winds uh, down the runway and not bad weather conditions... All of our landings were going to be in a delta, in a delta landing, six-plane landing. But if we were going someplace that had something less, like 150-foot-wide runway, well, then we had to land four and two. And so we would land, the solos would land as a section. Now, we did fly an air show one time in Fort Collins, and it was a 50-foot-wide runway, and it was, I think, 5,000-foot five, 5, long. So we had to make individual landings there, you know, and actually we had to make individual takeoffs too. Oh, that's outstanding. I wish the Blues would, uh, I guess they're not able to do that in the F-18 Hornets today. My understanding, and I flew the F-18 too, and here's a story, you know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Dave Anderson. I was a uh, skipper of, uh, of an A-4 squad, or I'm sorry, of an A-7 squadron down at Point Magoo. And uh, while I was uh, CO, we transitioned to the F-18. So we got our F-18s down there in, seven, in 87. And that was the same year that Dave Anderson and the uh, 87 team was getting their uh, F-18s. And so he and I would spend some time on the phone talking about doing maneuvers with the F-18 uh, with what I had and what I was used to doing in the A-4. And then what, you know, then he would transition that over to what he could do with the blue jet. One of the things that the F-18 was notorious for at that time was a uh, drag link failure that would cause the nose gear to cock off real fast. In fact, we lost at Point Magoo. We lost one, one wasn't one of our F-18s, but, but a uh, sister squadron lost an F-18 there that the guy touched down and that drag link failure caused his nose to cock to the left and spun him off the side of the runway. He ejected out of it. But for that reason, uh, my understanding is the Blues are not flying, uh, doing a Delta or a, a, a diamond landing because of that possibility of a failure. Now, who knows with the uh, Super Hornet, as they get them, uh, hopefully some of those things will be ironed out because it is so impressive. I mean, obviously we see the diamond takeoffs, 
it is so impressive to see a diamond landing, or even if they could, if they can have the runway that's available to be able to do the, the delta landing. I'm not sure it's probably the smartest thing to do. I mean, even in the time that we used to do them, because of the fact that it put the slot pilot, you know, in a precarious position. Um, I'm not sure that's really the way to go yet, but that's for them to determine. Yeah, there's a video floating around there on YouTube of uh, a Hornet diamond landing with the Blue Angels 1998 Miramar, and that uh, I recently came across that. So I'd love it if maybe they could bring that back with the Super Hornets. But anyway, I move on. I had the chance of interviewing your opposing solo, Johnny Miller, uh, several months back, and he talked about how you got him up to speed uh, as uh, transitioning on the team. One of the things he brought up was the fact that you actually handed him a stack of accident reports right when he got there. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember it pretty well because uh, I spent my year as number six. One of the reasons I wanted to get to know all the old solo pilots is I wanted to find out the issues that they had to deal with. And what I found out, and at that time it was so, uh, that was not anywhere near public knowledge as to what had happened, you know, with the uh, a lot of times accidents would happen that didn't involve the public at all. And so they were, you know, that was something that, it, but I was able to ferret out all the accidents that had happened. And m the majority of the guys that got killed was number six and it happened at winter training. And so as I thought about that, you know, and working up what I was going to do, you know, how, I mean, my biggest fear in uh, taking a guy, you know, through as an opposing solo was, you know, I got to get him through safely. I mean, the, the, you know, the the, uh, the responsibility lies on you, you know, as, as much as it does the individual himself. Now, granted, some of those guys are pure pilot error, stupid stuff, you know, things that happen that, that you know, <laughs> going to cause you to break your jet or whatever. But, uh, but in order to get through winter training, I figured that was my first step. And so I did. I told Johnny, I said, this is what kills you. These maneuvers are what kill you. And uh, we also had a... Uh, a written document that had been passed down over the years that was how to do the maneuvers. And then it's the whole key of, you know, being able to do them safely a hundred out of a hundred times and, you know, know you're never going to break an airplane doing it. Yeah. And the other thing that Johnny brought up to me when I was interviewing him is that the lead solo would typically take, uh, the grief from the, the maintenance team, if, say, for example, on takeoff, uh, Johnny was flying too low and had leaves in his landing gear, you're the one that would get in trouble. Is that true? Well, I remember that situation, and I remember the maintenance officer chewing me out about it, called me up at, at after we'd gotten back at the end of an air show and said, it, said I had drugged Johnny down through the trees, you know, and Johnny and I have talked about it. We joked about that because, you know, everybody flies their own airplane. The only time, I guess, that I... Uh, okay, think about in 82, there was a big accident with the Thunderbirds. Uh, the four planes were flying out in the desert, and they were, the, the boss was flying, flying them through a line of breast loop. And you got the guy, each of the guys, each of the wingmen are looking 90 degrees out the side of the cockpit. You know, they're, So they're looking directly only over at the leader. And they're coming down the backside of that loop. Well, all four of them pancaked into the ground, killed all four of them. Anytime I flew a maneuver, uh, with anybody, uh, I had one eye on where it was supposed, I was supposed to be looking, like at the boss, and the other eye was at the ground or whatever that I thought might hurt me. And uh, it was like, you know, I'm flying my own airplane, and that case with Johnny, yeah, I was probably coming around low. I mean, we, we operated low all the time, and if you're on the inside or the low side of a uh, trying to join up, and, and you'll see this in today's air shows uh, with the F-18s, where they're rendezvousing, say, behind the crowd, and now the way they do it, they leave their smoke on, so 
they can let everybody see how these rendezvous go because some of the hairiest part of the flying air show business is making the rendezvous getting joined up again after you've split apart. And, uh, and so, you know, you just have to know that you have to fly your own airplane too and, and realize where the ground is at. So I know Johnny and I joke about that little issue because, uh, <laughs> that can happen there. Things happen with the team sometimes. And, you know, we talk about our briefs and debriefs. And I know I was talking with some people uh, recently about how when the six of us went into a debrief, and that's why the the reason they're closed is that no matter what might have happened during the show and whatever might uh, emotions you might have felt because of whatever happened, you know, you've got to hash them all out and you have to walk away from that debrief with everybody feeling okay, you know, at least the point where you know, you're still not ferreting some kind of anger or angst or something like that with an issue. So sometimes then a deep, uh, an after show debrief might take three hours, three and a half hours. I mean, it might take a long time in order to iron out, iron out all your feelings and be feeling good about each other again. We brought up the maintenance team earlier. It's hard to kind of talk about the Blue Angels without mentioning the maintenance team. How important are they to your, your job as a Blue Angel pilot? Well, I thought they were just absolutely... Uh, so critical. I mean, you know, when you think about the fleet, you know, when we were out there doing that, we'd have a plane captain and he'd be in charge of that airplane. But, you know, his experience level might not be all that high. And so, you know, we pre-flight the airplanes, you know, so super thoroughly. I mean, our our lives relied, you know, or we're in the hands of our crew chiefs. You know, I had two outstanding, incredibly great crew chiefs. Dwayne Mudisbaugh, I had both years. Second year, I also, as an alternate, I had a fellow named Bill Rogers. Both those guys passed down. But, you know, I just absolutely thought the world of them. All those troops, you know, they're first class, second class. Uh, they're absolutely at the, the elite of our maintenance community in the Navy. We got to be very, very close. I mean, it's not like, well, granted, you know, in front of official duties, you know, it's like, yes, sir, no, sir, and all that, whatever you had to do. But other than that, you became, you know, a really tight-knit group. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they were some of the best friends that I had. And and, I've, and, and I, I just can't say enough for them. You know, and I think where some of the, it's interesting about how some of the feelings that you might have. I want to give some kudos back to my first boss, Tony Les, because Boss Les taught me a lot about leadership and about uh, working with uh, with men. Uh, well, now I'm with women, but uh, the the uh, idea that you know that to develop the respect on both levels. You know that I have great respect for them, and hopefully they'll have respect for me, and that you can. Um, so I can say I give that that to, he, to him specifically with the blues, and then of course there was another individual in there too that you know goes back to hum, combat days. And he actually retired as a four star, but the guy I flew my first uh, combat mission on in Vietnam was a fellow named Stan Arthur, and retired as a, a vice CNO uh, back in the I believe it was in the eighties or early nineties, something like that. And I looked at both of those guys as the epitome of leaders. And, you know, to be able to, to work with the troops and, uh, and have that rapport, you know, as a working team and not just as a, uh, a lording leadership or lording a position over the top of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I've never heard a, a bad word about Boss Les. I've, people speak about him in the highest regard. Thinking uh, back now, do you do you remember your last air show and any emotions there at all with the Blue Angels? 
you know, I remember specifically the last air show, you know, uh, you know, and totally embedded in my mind in the fact that uh, it was, of course, November, late November. You know, we flew a, bit, a little bit later in the season back in those days than they do now. And so uh, we had had to cancel the Saturday show due to bad weather, which was fine with me. <laughs> you know, I, that was great to have the day off because I was at the end of my second year and I was ready for the season to be over. That's kind of what I felt, you know, in the last show. And it was somewhat, yeah, it was emotional. Uh, but I remember getting out of the airplane, and my crew chief had to give me my flight, give me a flight jacket to wear because it was so cold. Uh, cold front had come through, and we were just like freezing out there, you know. Uh, so in Pensacola, at fifty degrees and and uh, clear skies, you know, you know it was cold. But um, no, I was glad to take off the blue suit, and uh, you know, I stayed around for a few more weeks. I think I ended up flying an airplane out to winter training in early January before I had to report to my next duty station. And I just wore my uh, my green bag, my uh, green flight suit, and I took off, you know, like an hour or so after the Blues did to fly to, and I think we were refueling in El Paso or something like that, but I let them fly ahead, land, get refueled, and be gone, and then I just came through with a spare jet, and uh, I just wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, just totally incommunicado. I didn't, you know, I was, <laughs> I was ready for that part of my life to be over. And you had a 23 year career in the Navy. So obviously you stayed in after the blues. Where did life take you? And I know you mentioned the F-18 squadron. Well, initially after the blues, I got my career enhancing billet to uh, be a catapult officer on the USS Eisenhower, which was a pre-commissioning unit uh, coming out of Norfolk. So we went up there for a couple of years and, uh, that was an interesting tour, but I saw where the rest of my career was going to go. I mean, I had kind of, I'd gone, I'd spent too much time on sea duty. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'd spent too much time on shore duty. And so the Navy was going to get their just due. So I could see coming out of uh, my cat officer billet at uh, the, on the Eisenhower to go to um, back to A7s and then, you know, continue on doing all that. Uh, the real crux though, two things happened. One was, from the Navy standpoint, was that they were going to send me to Jacksonville, and I really wanted to go back to the West Coast. But the other really critical part, what really hit me the most, was at that point, her daughter was six years old, and we just had her son had just been born. And I started looking at that whole thing about sea tours, and I mean, I love the Navy and, and everything that goes along with that and everything, but it is really, really hard on, on married life. And uh, so I saw that, and uh, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to take my family through that. Uh, it was more important, you know, in that respect. So I left the Navy then after that was right up coming up on 11 years. And, but I affiliated with the reserves right away. And, uh, I took an airline job on the West coast flying for Western airlines and then affiliated with the reserves out of Point Magoo. And up there, um, we were able to, I was flying the A7, you know, used to that and everything. And, and then as I, I was in that squadron for about seven years. And during that time that I was in the squadron, you know, as I went, you know, I, I came out of the Navy as Lieutenant Commander. And then uh, shortly thereafter in the reserves, I made commander. And, uh, and then I ended up, you know, screening for XOCO of the squadron. And uh, so I stayed in. And what got really difficult even at that point, and I'm still flying an airline job and trying to do my reserve duty at the same time. Now, we were only living about 20 minutes away from the reserve base. So it made it easy, and, well, not easy, but made it convenient to get out to the reserves to, to go fly a hop. 
So I got in, got a lot of flight time in. I got a lot of extra carrier landings in because we were doing boat debts all the time with the A7. And uh, then as I was a uh, skipper, um, we were transitioned to the F-18. So uh, that was really kind of a uh, interesting aspect of going from flying A-4s and then through the A-7, which was a fun airplane. I enjoyed that. And then the F-18 at the end. But, you know, people asked me a lot. They said, you know, which did I, you know, like the best? Well, the F-18 was really a fun G-Wiz airplane. I mean, you know, with all the switches and, and controls and everything you could do for whether you're bombing. I, I went on my first bombing hop in training and had 12 Mark 76s practice bombs on it. And I got seven bullseyes and, the, and my worst hit was like 60 feet. And the only reason it was a bad hit was because I was trying to, I was messing around with the different systems and realized that I was better off to just do uh, a manual type bombing with the, uh, with the F-18. And then the other role was to learn the fighter role. And I, <laughs> I don't want to step on any toes here, but I, I found out, I mean, being a fighter guy was really kind of fun, you know, just fun and game switchology and all that sort of stuff. And then when you get into a real four ball, you know, where you're, guns only well the f-18 was a good airplane to fly for that but it still goes back to the a4 days the a4 was absolutely the best and i'd take an a4 and take on anybody you know yeah so you had a pretty long career in the navy and the blue angels is just a two-year part of that where does the blues really fit into your life i know there's a saying once a blue always a blue uh how would you describe the impact of being a blue angel pilot had on your career and your life well you know there's obviously goods and bads on all that you know for one thing, I mean, on the negative end of it, you know, you've been there and people expect maybe a, lo- a lot more out of you, you know, than um, than maybe an average, you know, aviator going through or just a regular fleet aviator going through. Uh, where I found it, you know, difficult was both in the Navy and in the airlines in that, you know, oh, this guy's flown with the blues, so they expect you to be the ace of the base. Well, that's not the case. I mean, the guys, the blues are just regular pilots. I've always said that. Probably 95% of the guys who have gold wings out there could could be blues. It's just a matter of training, you know, and uh, train to proficiency, you know. And, you know, you get thrown in the spotlight for, you know, a couple of years and don't let it go to your head because, you know, you're just a regular person. And, you know, and then from what the experience, though, that, that I use, because I'm so grateful about having had that opportunity, I've always had uh, an affinity to working with youth and young people. And so... You know, my my big thing is always, you know, ever since I left the team, I've been involved with the aviation exploring with the Boy Scouts. Uh, any young people I see in, you know, going around the path, I'm, I'm talking to them about, you know, becoming a pilot, becoming an aviator. You know, you thought about the Navy, carrier aviation. And, you know, I can, I can feel proud of the fact that I've, you know, I think I've had some insight for a lot of those individuals um, to go off to aviation careers. Uh, unfortunately, maybe not enough to the Navy. <laughs> Seems like maybe I tell too many true stories about what happens in the Air- in the uh, in the Navy and carrier aviation and stuff like that, and they end up joining the Air Force. <laughs> uh, do you ever go back and watch the Blue Angels fly today at all? I do. Uh, well, actually, the only thing that I'm really involved with, and it's our family that's involved with it, um, that we have been part of for the last 20 years of uh, up here in Seattle, they have Seafair in August. It's the first weekend in August every year. And uh, there's a, the, they're hosted, the Blues are hosted by the Washington Athletic Club, which is a, a private club downtown Seattle that's a great uh, uh, workout facility. And so they've hosted the Blues 
for well over 20 years now. So 20 years ago, they started uh, hiring a boat, a uh, big charter boat, to go out on Lake Washington. Uh, Seattle's kind of one of the premier show sites, I think, for the families. And the fact that Seattle just, you know, just throws out the red carpet for the families to come on up uh, to be a part of, uh, to be a family weekend for them. So in this boat that's, that's, that they charter to go out, it holds about 250 people or so. Um, all the wives and family members of the team members that are here go out on that boat. And so for the last 20 years, there's another fellow, Jim Horsley. He was a, a diamond pilot uh, in 80, 81. And he and I have been narrating that show for these years. Now, the show is, you know, it's not real close to center point or anything like that, but it's really been the only way that I've had any relatively close association with the blues, with the exception of maybe every few years, uh, I take a group of kids up uh, to, a, to Boeing Field where they operate out of, and we'll do a meet and greet with the, uh, with the team, uh, the current team that comes in with them so these young people can, you know, can talk to the, to the team like that. But and then the only other thing that I we've been doing is that every five years when the uh, Blues have their every five-year reunion, we go to Pensacola and do that. But other than that, um, that's really about about all uh, that we have to do with them. Well, Denny, I've appreciated your time this day. Is there, is there anything we've left off the table here that you want to mention or talk about, or you think we covered it all today? There's just so many people that I could talk about and everything, but... I appreciate the fact that you're doing this, that you've taken this on as a project. Uh, like I say, I revered your, your grandfather. I thought Butch Morris was, uh, I mean, I'm just so grateful that he put all this together. And I'm thinking about when I was on the team at the 30-year mark, and of course, Butch was there for that show. If I ever had a show that I ever was really proud of being able to do, it was the 76th, 30th anniversary show at Miramar. Uh, Saturday, it was the bicentennial show that year too, and so probably eighty percent of ex blues were at that show site, you know, and so you know over hundred exes were there, plus some of the solo pilots. Well, there there was a maneuver that I had put into the middle of a show of that show season that I only did for a couple of months, and then it got stopped. And uh, but it was a maneuver that the A four was so powerful. I wanted people to see what the all these X's and stuff. I wanted people to see what the A4 could do, because when you think about you know the basic weight thrust to weight weight ratio on the A4 with the load that we had in it for solo flying was better than one to one. So it was kind of like today's thing with the F18 when you're in burner and you can go to one to one. So and the maneuver that I did was uh, Johnny and I had developed a maneuver that was called a clean loop dirty loop. And number five always did a dirty loop. This time we incorporated Johnny doing a clean loop. And we would do this at the same, we hit center point at the same time. And I was going about 175 or so. Johnny would be going about 450. And we'd pull, our, pull the nose up. And it was the geometry of how this maneuver went that at 90 degrees nose up, we were matched. Over the top, uh, we were matched. I would be at about 2,500 feet. And Johnny was at about 5,000 feet. And then coming down the backside, 90 degrees nose down, same match. You know, I, uh, I was slow. He was fast. And as we hit the bottom, um, and he came blowing by me at about 450 or so, 500, uh, I was slow. 
and but it was the same match. So symmetrically, it was a great it was a great looking maneuver from a solo standpoint and aviator standpoint. Well, as I would clear that maneuver, I realized that in order to get my landing gear up, I had to roll the aircraft inverted because there was so much. I was pulling G on the aircraft, positive G, and the landing gear wouldn't suck up. So if I roll inverted, well, the landing gear then came clipped right close. So I got to thinking, I thought, you know, I think I can do an outside half Cuban eight on a cleanup on this thing too. So I was able to do it. And the way that it worked is that, so as I'm hitting the bottom of that dirty loop while Johnny's coming by me, I'm sucking up the flaps, boards are in at that point. Of course, I've got my gear and my hook down. Now I roll inverted, I'm going about 175 knots. I roll inverted, go to full power, push the nose at about two negative Gs through the inverted outside maneuver. Going through 90 degrees nose up, I'm bringing the landing gear closed and the hook up, same time going up. I come up over the top of this thing at about 2,200, 2,400 feet, and I'm only at about 100 knots. I mean, it's just kind of, the airplane at this point is just kind of ballistic. It's zero G, and it's just ballistic through the sky. I don't want to do anything with the ailerons, you know, don't want to create any kind of drag or, or wing fall off or anything like that. I'm just letting it go ballistic over the top at about 2,200 feet. The nose is falling through the horizon. Of course, I'm at full power. Now the speed's picking up really fast because that's a clean airplane, you know, with that one-to-one -one thrust weight ratio. And by the time I hit the bottom back in front of the crowd again at 100 feet, I'm at about 500 knots. And uh, it's just, a, it's an eye-watering maneuver to see and, uh, you know, for what the aircraft can do. I mean, not that the aircraft was all that tough. I think I'm the only guy that has ever done anything like that in the world anywhere. Uh, I actually had to stop doing that maneuver. Uh, I'm not going to get into that or anything, but, uh, but anyway, that, you know, so when you ask about favorite maneuvers, I actually never got a chance to really get into that whole thing that, uh, that, that was one that I did. I bet uh, a lot of the exes got to talk about that one with you after the show. Well, that was what was interesting because Vance, you know, he was back at the show site and, uh, you know, from the, you know, he was flying F-14s at that point. And so he got a chance to see it. And uh, Lambert was there, and Turkey wasn't there. Jerry was, I think, at, at sea, I think, at that point. And I don't know, there was, you know, but the solos were the ones that could really appreciate it, the ones that could really understand what that aircraft could do. Wasn't anything that, that, that we could do, it's just that the aircraft, the A 4 was absolutely the best air show performing aircraft the Navy's ever had, you know. You, you, you just couldn't do anything wrong with it. And, and I won't downgrade the, the Phantom. I mean, the Phantom was big and noisy and, uh, you know, and so that was impressive in that respect. But, and then the F-18 is just as, you know, big, noisy and, and does some good stuff. But as far as maneuverability goes, and probably, you know, from based on the solo, I'm talking strictly from a solo standpoint, it was the best air show airplane that the Blues have ever had. Well, Denny, this has been a great conversation. I hope we get to meet in person sometime. I make it out to Pensacola uh, every year lately, so hopefully we can bump into each other real soon. I hope so, Ryan. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right, so that wraps up this episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Special thanks to Denny Sapp for joining us today. I hope you guys are really enjoying these conversations. I know I am. And if you are enjoying them, do me a favor and make sure you subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel. So until next time... I'll see you real soon.